Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast series focusing on critical business decisions. Brought to you by Brady Ware and Company. Brady Ware is a regional, full-service accounting and advisory firm that helps businesses and entrepreneurs make visions a reality. Welcome to Decision Vision, a podcast giving you, the listener, clear vision to make great decisions. In each episode, we discuss the process of decision-making on a different topic from the business owner's or executive's perspective. We aren't necessarily telling you what to do, but we can put you in a position to make an informed decision on your own and understand when you might need help along the way. My name is Mike Blake, and I'm your host for today's program. I am the managing partner of Bradyware Arpeggio, a data-driven management consultancy which brings clarity to owners and managers of unique businesses facing unique strategic decisions. Our parent, Brady Ware & Company, is sponsoring this podcast. Brady Ware is a public accounting firm with offices in Dayton, Ohio, Alpharetta, Georgia, Columbus, Ohio, and Richmond, Indiana. If you'd like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. I also host a LinkedIn group called Unblakeable's Group That Doesn't Suck. So please join that as well if you would like to engage. Today's topic feels extremely timely, um, and I wish I could tell you that on May 31st, I had the foresight that the topic was going to be so timely as it is, uh, but I can't. Sometimes sometimes just things work out. I don't want to use the word luck, because given where we are, that's, a, that's not a term I'm very comfortable with. But the topic today is, should I align my company with a political position? And, um, you know, whether you find yourself on the left or the right of the political spectrum, I think few people would argue that we are in a, an unusually fractured political environment, which is spilling over into the social environment. And as, as a result, both ideolo- competing ideologies are now competing for whatever power, influence, resources they can muster in order to ensure the outcome of a society that they deem ideal, or at least as close to ideal as is humanly possible. And, you know, I'm, I'm old enough to remember um, apartheid and the movement against American companies or, or rather the, move, the social movement that were protesting companies that would continue to do business with South Africa because people felt that in doing so, you're propping up the, uh, the apartheid government there. Uh, and of course, in the late 80s, early 90s, the apartheid government went away. South Africa is now what it is today. Um, but that's an early example of, of social activism, at least in my memory, social activism putting pressure on on companies to take a specific position. And now in recent history, um, and and frankly, it's current events, um, we see quite a bit of that. Um, There was a a fairly extraordinary step of Nike deciding to go all in with Colin Kaepernick, a move that I thought was risky. I still think it was risky, but it it did work out for them. It turns out it turns out the hundred people or so that that burned Nike shoes on YouTube were probably about the only hundred customers they lost, and their stock price has gone through the roof ever since. And one of the, one of the object lessons there is you have to be careful 
just because you see somebody on the media saying something or doing something, that doesn't mean that there's a critical mass of, of support behind it. Um, and, and more recently, we have seen the fight between the government of the state of Georgia and, and Disney. Um, and, and now comp- and we've seen it with companies lining up uh, on two sides of the Russia-Ukraine war. Most now, I think, companies, somewhat, some of them somewhat belatedly and even perhaps begrudgingly, uh, are choosing to withdraw from Russia as a show of support for um, the Ukrainians in that particular war. And uh, now that we find ourselves in the wake of the Texas school shootings and the Buffalo uh, hate crime uh, shootings, uh, the next battleground clearly is going to be uh, clearly is going to be uh, gun control. And then later this year, it's a drop dead certainty that abortion is going to be a position that consumers are frankly just going to demand that companies take a position on. I, I remember in college, um, Peter Illich, a practicing Catholic, was very supportive of, of uh, uh, anti-abortion causes. And uh, that did hurt for a long time Domino's position in the college market, which tend to skew more, tend to skew more liberal. Um, but the point is, is that, to my mind anyway, this, this notion of, of companies that are be, going to be asked to take a, a public political position and not only take a public position, but actually act on it, possibly to the, the short-term apparent detriment to their businesses, I think is something that is likely here to stay, at least for the medium term. And that means that as business owners, as business decision makers and advisors, we're going to be in a position of making that decision like it or not and helping other people make that decision. And so joining us today to help us understand at least his perspective on this, and I think his perspective is quite valuable and learned, is Peter Barron, who is CEO of Carabiner Communications, which is a leading full-spectrum marketing and public relations firm. Founded in 2004, they have a proven history of helping companies tell their most engaging stories and navigate a path to success. As their name implies, the agency helps uh, B2B tech and healthcare organizations get connected to their targeted audiences and the influencers who have their ear. The Carabiner team is comprised of experienced professionals whose services include messaging and branding, content development and marketing, public relations, lead generation, and more. They are known for being strategic, cost-effective, and always ready to partner with great companies to drive sales. Although Peter began his career with a large public relations agency in New York City, he ultimately found his way to the warm and sunny South and made it home. True to the agency name, he is one connected guy. Some folks think, and I'm one of them, knows he knows pretty much everyone in the Atlanta Tech community. And as an aside, they like him. <laughs> a lot of people, people like that. A lot of people like they don't necessarily know they don't necessarily like them. That's an important distinction. Um, <clears throat> Peter is typically the carabiner you'll run into at conferences and networking events where he's friendly, open, and loves to talk about the latest technology trends or his large family. While Peter drives agency direction and business development for carabiner, he also consults frequently on accounts and offers high-level campaign strategy. He loves to brainstorm, and I can attest to that. He also enjoys the great outdoors, including hiking, kayaking, and camping, great places for brainstorming. And fun fact, you may not realize it since he dropped the accent years ago, but Peter's from across the pond, and he's an expatriate of the United Kingdom. Your Majesty Peter Barron, welcome to the Decision Vision podcast, or your excellency. Thank you. Thank you. you. It's so good to be here. Thanks, Mike. Great talk. 
So great to see you again. And, and thanks for coming on to talk about, frankly, what I think is a very difficult topic. And I imagine if you're not getting questions about it now, you're going to quite a bit. Um, businesses seem to be more willing to align themselves with political causes, I think, than they have in the past. Do you agree with that observation? If so, why do you think that is? I think so. Um, it, it's certainly more visible than it has, but I think to, the the thing to, to to realize is not necessarily because of, of PR guys like me, uh, and I've been doing this since 1985, so it's been a few years. Um, and I think back to my education and the things that we were taught, um, it, it led to to sort of a discipline in the boardroom, or at least in the corporate communications team, where these kinds of things have been discussed and thrashed around for a long time because what what ultimately I think you're trying to do as a business is either try to control your business environment or operate well within an environment. So the fact that th this topic has come up and the companies might be feeling more pressure is, is interesting, but over the arc of time, um, I think you see that companies have tried to stay ahead of this curve and you know that they're working pretty hard right now to figure out what they want to do. And so when the pressure comes publicly, it's not unanticipated would be my, my thought. So one question I have is, you know, just because I, you know, we observe something doesn't necessarily make it true. Um, but are companies in actuality becoming more, becoming more active in the political discourse in our country or have they been all along realistically and it's simply becoming more visible than it has been? I think they've probably been involved all along. I made a couple of notes in preparing for the show and this is, it's interesting to quantify some things, but if you think about being aligned or involved with political causes, uh, you know, there are a number of ways to do that. One is publicly through your messaging and how you get involved. Another is, so what you do behind the scenes with your dollars, right? Um, so lobbying, for instance. And when you look at lobbying, for instance, um, I wanted to see what, you know, what was going on in terms of increasing dollars. So in 2021, the total lobbying spending in the United States amounted to $3.73 billion dollars. And this was an increase from the three and a half billion um, the year before. And the, the leaders in terms of spending were the National Association of Realtors, which is fascinating given, I mean, this is kind of an interesting time to buy and sell homes. Uh, the next group was the US Chamber of uh, Commerce. The next is the Pharmaceutical Research and Manufacturers of America. And then the last one was uh, the American Hospital Association. So, you know, spending a good bit of money. Pfizer spent 10.9 million on lobbying in 2020. Um, probably, I mean, you could argue at a time when companies that were producing a COVID vaccine didn't really need to spend a lot of money. They were making a lot of money, but yeah, they were still uh, applying their dollars in the halls of, of Congress or perhaps even on a state level. So that's, to me, evidence of, how businesses really play uh, in the political spectrum. and But I know our show is probably more about what we're seeing in the news right now, so the public pressure to play, I, th I think, um, realistically, 
you know, they're being pretty sophisticated players. Well, you know, I do think those two things are linked, right? I, you know, I agree with you. They've been playing all along through lobbying and, you know, lobbying is to me is kind of interesting. Um, nobody likes lobbyists unless they're lobbying for something that you care about and agree with. <laughs> um, and, and lobbying is also, you know, quite opaque. You know, I, I rarely, I cannot remember the last time it, I'm sure it's happened. I just can't remember, but I can't remember the last time a specific company, a trade association. Yes. Like the NRA. Sure. But a specific company has been taken to task over their lobbying activity. Right. I just don't think it's really, I don't think for whatever reason it's, it's not considered a part of the brand or maybe it's just simply on some level uh, expected once your company receive, achieves a certain critical mass. Um, but, but beyond that now, what, what are you seeing companies considering as actions they might take to go beyond simple lobbying? And I'll put campaign donations in sort of the same bucket because they're not quite as visible. What steps are they, are they considering taking now? Yeah, I, um, you, lobbying and donations, of course, are the first two things that you see, but um, activism and encouraging their workforce to do something. Um, this is not a particularly um, charged example, but you've got a lot of companies that like to steer their employees into doing things like um, Habitat for Humanity, right? Home Depot doing these crews where they go out and help build homes. I think that's more of a grassroots um, effort. There are lots of companies doing that. Um, many of them are forced into doing things with compliance. So you look at environmental, social, and governmental ESG compliance requirements uh, in the construction space. And I'm not an expert there, but I've read a little bit about it recently. But you know, there were a lot of requirements for lead buildings, right? With the, these are buildings that are built using standards that indicate that the materials are sourced reasonably locally and that um, sustainable methods are being used. A lot of those things have been now encoded into regulation uh, on the state level, county level, but also on the federal level too. So in terms of actions that companies are taking, some of them are not voluntary. They're compliance oriented. And, uh, and I guess if a company doesn't like the, the, uh, the requirements, then you have to circle back to the lobbying, right? And say, well, you know what you're asking for me to do here? Or a lawsuit, right, is, is, an, is an opportunity. And there are certainly a lot of actions taken in the, in the legal sphere. Um, boards, you, you do find uh, board members being involved. Um, it used to be that board members were encouraged to be on the symphony board um, just to get some public exposure to be good citizens in their communities. Uh, but now board members are bringing their influence to bear in other organizations too. I'm not sure they're on uh, political campaign committees, um, but now that uh, I guess it was in, was it 2010, the Supreme Court said the companies could make direct uh, investments in uh, presidential elections. Um, you know, when a company takes a decision like that, that's got to be an interesting discussion, right? In the boardroom, who do you decide to pick and maybe maybe there's like a majority owner, but can you imagine in a sort of a diversely held uh, public corporation uh, if one of those is going to endorse a um, political candidate or not? That'd be a fascinating discussion. 
Yeah, and, and I want to I want to come back to that because I do think that's an interesting part of the discussion. But before I do, um, you you used a word which I, I think is is critically important. I want to kind of go back to and drill down on which is influence. I speculate, but I, I don't know. I don't have the data to support this. I don't know the data exists that at least some of these politically oriented activities are intended to simply gain influence in government rather than embrace or espouse or promote a particular political position. Indeed, I think I've seen a number of instances where the same company has made campaign donations to the, to opposing candidates in the same election, right? In some, some respect that tells me that they don't really care who wins they just want to make sure that there's somebody that whoever wins is going to take their phone call. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's, it's kind of a funny fact now that Trump has come and gone, but prior to Trump running for president, uh, 50% of his donations went to the Democrat party and the other 50 to Republicans. So, I mean, that kind of yeah, underlines, right. underlines your point uh, in, in kind of a highly public um, funny way. I, I do think that, yes, yeah, sort of maintaining the business environment, um, is one of the sort of top responsibilities for for any of these big businesses. Um, but as you were reading the introduction to the show, you talked about unique businesses. And I think a lot of our discussion so far has involved uh, big businesses, highly public. Uh, but when you talked about u- unique businesses, I, I thought, well, if I'm driving along the road, uh, going somewhere, I'm usually in traffic with uh, vans that belong to plumbers and electricians and dry cleaners and, you know, legitimate businesses that are uh, beholden to their customers. And, and, you know, they wake up every day trying to find parts so they can fix things or source products so they can sell them and install them and trying to do good work and try to hire people. And, you, you know, we never know or ask, uh, you know, what causes they're, they're supporting. So part of the discussion is interesting is that what part of the, our economy, which is mostly small businesses, even care about this? And uh, at what level does it become? Do you have the luxury, for instance, of trying to be somebody that's being a leader in this space? Well, and, and now this circles back nicely, I think, to the question about the boardroom is that how do you suppose, or maybe you've been in, in those discussions, I have not, but how do you suppose those discussions go? You know, is it, and I want, you know, is it a CEO or is it a board member or a member of the executive team that says, hey, you know, our company has an obligation to take this particular stance? And it, it seems to me there are really two questions to be answered. Number one is, A, do you want to do, do we want to take and spend shareholder capital on any stance whatsoever, you know, at all. And then B, you know, you're going to pick a side, right? How do you do that? What are the implications? Yeah. How how do you even broach that? I mean, just that, that conversation internally, unless you're really sure that everybody's just aligned, that has, that has the capacity to, to destroy a management team in about a half an hour, doesn't it? It does. Uh, and, And you should have a board that has diverse opinions, right? Where they can speak, openly and debate with one another, but hopefully reach a consensus at some point. Um, One thing that I've observed over time is that uh, large corporations spend a good bit of time and money on uh, risk evaluation. And uh, this information is regularly discussed in 
um, in board meetings. And so this sort of climate, unless you're brand new to a board, uh, you know, if you've been on a board for a number of years, every every meeting you've got this sort of evaluation of risk and the climate that they're involved in. And so their comments are always going to be made inside of that sort of soup mixture. Um, I would, so, so the question I would have is, given that you understand what the primary risk factors are for your business, let's say you're Georgia Pacific and you're still doing uh, generating electricity from coal-fired plants, um, or you're uh, Home Depot and you're sourcing wood from places like the Amazon, uh, you, all of these sort of hot button issues, you're, you're aware of these things from a risk standpoint, and you probably persist in doing them. Like, so the energy companies that are still, you know, getting uh, oil out of uh, fracking operations, even though they're highly unpopular. It's like you're, you, it seems like the businesses persist in doing things the way that they're currently set up until a point becomes not as big of a risk for them to make a change. Does that sound cynical? Um, I think that's part of the evaluation that the board is almost required to make, right? Is when is the right time for us to leave this sort of maybe older, dirtier way of doing things or a way that's marginalizing a group of people? Um, is now the right time for us to do that without breaking the company? And there might be some people out in there that say, I don't care if it breaks the company. Uh, let's go ahead and do it anyway. So, you know, you, you mentioned something else in passing, I, I think, I think is, is quite interesting. I want to come back to that. And you talked about wanting boards to be diverse and, have, and bring diverse opinions to the table. And I hadn't thought of this angle before, but now I'm thinking about it. And that is that I wonder if companies that are willing to take strong political positions, I'm going to use Disney for a moment because Disney is an example where they're they're just flat out they're just flat out going entering into open conflict with the George with the, the Florida government, right? Um, and they've basically said we'll go toe to toe, we can match you dollar for dollar in court, <laughs> and probably can outmarket you. Um, I wonder if that suggests that Disney's board may not be all that diverse if they are able to take such a strong position that they're willing to. They're willing to openly confront and in some respects, I guess, really defy the wishes of the government of their host state. You know, it seems it seems implausible to me that it's possible to get a truly independent and diverse board in full alignment over such a strong, risky position. That's interesting. Um, as you were speaking, I wondered. And it would be interesting to look at the composition of the Disney board. Um, you, you can argue, and, and this is sort of coming from my perspective as an immigrant somewhat, right? So lived in the United States for a long time, lived in the West, lived in the South. Um, I, I wonder how many people on the Disney board are actually from the South. You know, do any of them have um, ties to, to Florida other than perhaps living there fairly recently, but this is a complete guess on my part, but as a sort of leading entity in the en en entertainment business, that there are probably more uh, folks from the West Coast. Uh, generalities, right? So forgive me if I'm way off here. Um, 
where, where, where positions that they have seen and grown up with and become accustomed to and things that are, you know, this is natural. Uh, everybody should think and feel this way are not the uh, thoughts and feelings and the positions of a board in uh, Kissimmee, Florida, right? Um, yep. You get up to that sort of northern part. I mean, so Orlando is a big city, but um, it's a long way from Miami. Um, I don't know how far it is from Tallahassee, but Florida is an interesting, interesting state um, as they're finding out. So I, I wonder if from a diversity standpoint, if the board isn't more reflective of a non-Florida state mentality, um, that's maybe an obvious thing, right? That they're obviously not. Um, well, the interesting to them, look at. You know, yeah. I bet you a lot of them come from California. You know, to, well, that's to kind of entertainment company. Yeah, that's kind of what I was implying there. And California does look at the world differently. But California is invading the rest of the country, right? And, well, that, uh, that's certainly one position, right? That 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 some are interpreting that, that, that California is in effect, you know, either they're invading or they're using their <clears throat> their their economic power to promulgate certain viewpoints, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but it's but you know the, the fact that they've taken the extraordinary step of of openly defying a, a strong Florida government um, that you know right now may very well be currently led by somebody who may be the Republican nominee in 2024. Um, you know, it just it and I'm not advocating one way or the other. This isn't the forum for it, but I but I do I do have I do have a curiosity of what the process was and how hard it was to get to achieve the kind of consensus at the upper levels of that company required to take that, a a combative stand out to that extent. Yeah. So like you said, I think that's probably right. There probably was a unanimity, not the right way to say that uh, in terms of thought and philosophy uh, with regards to wanting to take this on like they did. So, you know, I'm going to ask you a very unfair question because you're not a sociologist, but I know this is something you think about in your mind. What are the social, do you have a view as to the social implications of corporations aligning themselves politically like this? Is, is it in your mind, something that, um, that can be distorting to society something that, that can be helpful or maybe you haven't even sorted it through yet, but what do you think are the implications? Yeah, I, I do have a thought or two. They tend not to be political, but but social. So, like, you know, I don't have any Tom's shoes, but I like the fact that Tom's gives a pair of shoes away when somebody buys a pair of shoes. I think that's really cool. Um, and there are others, you know, that do it with socks or other materials as well. Um, and and when you look at and, and you read about some of these companies, I know Zappos is involved with social causes too. The, the, you realize that they're coming from places where the leadership of the company has genuine uh, concerns and they tend to be apolitical, but um, wanting to address a broad need, uh, sometimes overseas, um, uh, sometimes domestically. When, when you look at um, a political stance that a company has taken and does that have a social impact, I've done a little bit of reading and I'm sort of trying to remember myself. Um, 
I can't see that it's had a sort of overly negative uh, impact. Um, you, you look at companies, <clears throat> again, not political, but you look at somebody like Chick-fil-A, who is probably making decisions from a, a religious uh, philosophy, uh, opening their store um, six days a week instead of seven. Um, they're, you know, they're the number five fast food company and, uh, you know, rising in sales all the time. And yet there have been a periods, periods through the last few years where there have been boycotts, right? Because of the uh, thoughts and beliefs and opinions of uh, our perceived thoughts and uh, opinions of their leadership. It, it hasn't seemed to have affected their, um, their growth. Now, there might be people that won't eat there and never will. But to your point in the opening with uh, Colin Kaepernick and the Nike, you know, maybe the hundred people that burned their shoes were the only the only people that stopped doing business with them. So, I I I wouldn't imagine that um, companies taking political stances in terms of it helping or hindering their business it t- tends not to be that dramatic. And if you've got a second, I found a quote here. This is uh, from. Um, a McKinsey report is talking about uh, this is a professor at Northeastern or Northwestern University Kellogg School of Management noted that in 2019, taking a political stance uh, can be good for business. However, to be successful, the key is for companies to know who they are and who their core shareholders are and what those stakeholders believe in. The article goes on to note that we live in an era of easy outrage. Uh, but King said that when Consumers threaten to boycott a brand. The company's reputation will generally be affected more than its finances. In that light, it also seems to evolve into an era of quick forgiveness. That's the quote I was trying to find. It's not the only quote, but it does seem interesting that when people are making decisions about where to spend their money, it doesn't really seem to make that big of a difference. Yeah, and I've I've seen similar data. The Economist had a good article. I'm going to say about three years ago, that basically showed that for the most part boycotts don't work, and and the reason they don't work actually I'll, I'll get into the finance geek part of this actually boils down to game theory, um, because because as a as as someone who says they're going to participate in a boycott, you gain the social approval as if you were actually behaving that way, but because there's no way to actually check upon your actual behavior, right? You can still do as you did, <laughs> but, but you still achieve the same sort of social approval or social right. capital, yeah. right? So um, at that point, it's, you know, what is, what is the cost of cheating? What is the likelihood of being, of being caught and basically outed? And so, you know, effectively, um, there is no, there is really no, no evidence that boycotts impact a company one way or, or the other. And I suspect also to the extent that people are so extreme that they'll modify their, their purchasing decisions. And let's take Disney, right? Lots of people have gotten on TV and said, well, I'll never go to a Disney world again. We're never going to watch Snow White, everything else or boycotting, right? You know, yeah. I, I, but I think our political spectrum is a bell curve for everybody who says they're no longer going to do that again. There's another person on the other side who says, I'm going to make it a point to make sure that Disney gets all my money at every single opportunity to yeah. reward them for the position that they took. Right. And then there's the 99.5% of the rest of the population that may express an opinion. But at the end of the day, 
um, as economists say, they express their revealed preferences. Like don't believe what people say, believe what they spend their money on. Right. Right. <clears throat> yeah. Those are great points. I mean, you made the Nike analogy earlier. Uh, I found a, a number of 6 billion Nike's uh, overall brand value increased by $6 billion after his decision to feature Colin uh, Kaepernick. And that's an old number. So the businesses are in business to make money, right? And so this climate that we're in with this, uh, what was the quote I used? Um, easy outrage. You know, what, what's making the easy outrage possible? Have people always had the same temperament or similar temperament to what we have now? Yeah. I, but I think we're in, in kind of the middle of a movement almost where we realize that things can be done uh, for good. Obviously, with the social changes that, that came, um, you know, in the early days of the pandemic with uh, racial issues, um, you know, movements were formed and noise made and, and good changes made. And I, I think people were encouraged by that and sort of were, were, were told um, you can't be seen as being thoughtful about this. You have to be seen as being making statements, right? And the ones that were like, well, hold on a minute. I really need to think this through. I, I need to feel, I need to know how I feel about this. Like, well, you're part of the problem. You, uh, you really need to hurry and make up your mind. And if you're not making up your mind, you're actually, they tell you which side you're on. Oh, yeah. That's a little bit um, of the problem we have with this. I really love that term, easy outrage. And I, I agree with you. You know, it's something that social media has has enabled because now if you're outraged about something, it used to be kind of hard to find somebody that was just as outraged about it as you or even more. Yeah. Where, where now a thousand people having the same outrage and maybe the only thousand people that are truly outraged about it uh-huh. are only a click away. Right. right. And and they're they're you know an amplification chamber basically. Yeah. Um I think I think in the climate we're in though, I I, I think it's gonna have a season. Um and because I think um being considerate and thoughtful is valued more highly. And and because you know we're on a timeline. Uh, as things go forward and as you look back, you know, you try to learn the lessons of history. Um uh, and it's hard to be running on, uh, you know, at 10 all the time. Yeah, I, I can't. I mean, and that's not the topic of the of the conversation, but I'm going to interject it anyway. You know, I've I've I know people that appear to have an endless capacity for outrage. Mm-hmm. I have the capacity to be outraged for about three things at any one given point in time. And one of those is usually being frustrated with one of my sports teams screwing something up. Um, and, and it, 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 it takes a lot of energy, but now coming back to the actual topic, I, I do wonder, and maybe this is too cynical, but there's data to back this up. I now kind of wonder if outrage sells and, and my, yeah. and my, my, my support for that is that the economist, again, I should be, every time I mention that I should be getting some kind of royalty, but anyway, um, uh, they published a great article about two years ago. That, that outlined the case that the more outrage a media outlet generates, the more profitable they are. Yeah. And they're more profitable because people who are outraged are 
are going to spend more time in the place that 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 feeds their outrage because in effect it's a dopamine manipulation when somebody's sort of satisfying your outrage right there's a hormonal reaction um and and, and second when those people self-identify and this gets into your neck neck of the woods peter is is what a great way to to identify your customer avatar right they're screaming at you all the time saying this is the one thing that i care about and so you know as opposed to the olden days where 50% of advertising was wasted, right? In an outrage environment now, in the right kind of medium, you're you're getting 90% efficiency in your advertising dollars now. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Um, yeah, I mean, if you look at some of the, um, the billionaires that make investments uh, politically, Several of them are from this uh, industry that really makes a lot of money from uh, fanning the outrage, right? So you've got uh, Rupert Murdoch, you know, with the Fox Group, and you've got Michael Bloomberg. Um, you know, there's there's a number that, uh, that directly benefit from people tuning in and uh, persisting to tune in. Um, I, I, I think Elon Musk is another. Yeah, yeah, the whole Twitter thing. I mean, it's a platform for people to listen to thoughts and opinions all the time. Um, and a confession, uh, you know, a number of years ago, probably probably 20 years ago, I would be driving around a lot in the car to meetings and would listen to AM radio. Um, and I found it very stimulating and interesting, but also enraging. And then I realized uh, that it was sort of coloring my thoughts and opinions of people so i couldn't almost enter a room without trying to figure out who was who was what mm. and, and i decided that you know that's not the way i want to be you know i, I like people and I, I want to sort of treat them for who they really are and i stopped listening to it um and then i realized boy my life is so much happier now plus i'm not listening to as many commercials and then i thought okay yeah that's the whole deal right they want to keep me on the line to have me listening to commercials. And, you know, so that's the moneymaker for all of this. Let me, let me engage these people so that they'll keep coming and I can keep putting uh, commercials in front of them and making money. But, you know, having said that, I think, for instance, if you look at uh, the sort of right hand side of the spectrum and the left, both of those, I think have kind of shot all their bullets and, um, you know, declining audiences, people are just sick of it. They, they you know, especially when, uh, you know, the war in Ukraine started, people wanted to find other sources for information. And I did, for, I would, I'd, I'd be looking at um, the, the German, the French, the British uh, broadcast, streaming broadcasts. Uh, I even was looking at Al Jazeera um, just to try and figure out, you know, where's the real information here? Completely didn't even consider the sort of two main U.S. sources of information. Uh, and I think a lot of people are, are either getting to that point or have gotten to that point. And what does that say for their for audience loss, losing customers, uh, too much of the same thing all the time, milking it and milking it until you've lost the trust of your customers? To me, that's not doing your business a favor. So in your mind, when, when companies are, are choosing to align with a, align with some political position 
Do you think that that's being led top down that the company executives are saying are, are in effect thinking because we have this resource, because we have this audience and because we have this money, we have an obligation to do something. Or do you think that it's more being led our customers who align with us expect us to do something and therefore we have to we we have to take a position or our customers will start to be confused with our why yeah i i've got two answers <clears throat> one of them is coke industries and the other is a quote from unilever right so coke industries is uh, it's not coca-cola uh, k-o-c-h yep uh, they own georgia pacific and several others are i think are probably a I know they're at least a $15 billion, maybe a lot more. Um, they, they, their political involvement is really driven by the ideology of the two brothers that own this immensely huge private company. Um, I know there's probably a lot of people that work at Georgia Pacific that don't side with the, the views of their owners, right? Um, I know someone who quit Georgia Pacific over it. Yeah, yeah, and I see we were doing work for them when Coke bought them, and there were a lot of people that were not happy with uh, you know the sort of leanings of the Coke brothers and others that were. So some corporations make their decisions based on you know the very top level. This is kind of their ideology, and they're going to use their resource pool to take care of it. But then you look at the other side of the coin. That's a quote from Paul Pullman, the CEO of Unilever. He said. Um, I've seldom met a customer and I go on a lot of home visits or I go around with shoppers. And I've seldom met a consumer who buys our wonderful Nor products or Lipton or Omo or Skippy because they like our strategy. And so our business is a very simple one of getting the right products at the right place and at the right quality and at the right price all the time. Um, I thought it was fascinating, you know, for, given that this guy is, is kind of well known for making comments about social causes that really what they're about as a company. And he's going on home visits. How many CEOs actually go to see somebody that buys Skippy peanut butter? Well, and, uh, you know, I, I would argue that's probably why they've enjoyed success. But it, it, it but, you know, that, that says a really interesting thing. And that at the end of the day, consumers have a problem they've got to solve, right? And, and if, if the company is solving that problem well and better than a readily available alternative, then perhaps a lot of customers will just sort of turn a blind eye or, or frankly, just will override it saying, yeah, I don't, I, I don't love the fact that the Koch brothers presumably are contributing heavily to Republican candidates. But on the other hand, um, you know, they have the best flooring at the best price they can have it on my job site in two days. You know, I have a I have a business to run. Yeah. <laughs> and and I wonder if what we're discovering here is that when businesses take a when businesses take a political position, they are expressing a high level of confidence in this in their market power. Right, that that they aren't going to alienate customers because it is hard for them to switch. It'd be painful for them, to, more painful for them to switch than it would be to continue to pay money that they know may ultimately be directed at a cause to which they are opposed. Yeah, 
I think that's a good um, summation. In fact, if you were to try and look for an example of a company that really suffered because of taking a political position, it might be hard to find one. Uh, you know, and I was going to ask about that. Um, you know, I, I know that there are small companies that 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 might have. Um, uh, there was a restaurant in town. I'm sure that you know it uh, over there near uh, 285 and 75 and. I'm not going to call them out by name, but but they're very well known in the business community. Um, we've all had breakfast there. Oh, okay. And then, and then uh, shortly before the 2020 election, they decided they were going to go all in for Donald Trump. Yeah. And a lot of people, some people you and I both know that have been longtime patrons, longtime cheerleaders, uh, just said, and I'm going to assume for the moment they actually did what they said they they did. Said, no, I'm never going back there again. Yeah. Um. Again, did it hurt or did it also encourage people who were supporters of Donald Trump to say, okay, we got to rally around this restaurant and reward them for taking yeah. this position because it's costing them business. And you know, absent a very expensive survey, there's really no practical way to know that. But I do know they're still operating. And when you go there, there's still a lot of people in the restaurant. Huh, okay. I was going to ask, are they still in business? Because of course, oh, then they, they, went, they are. They are yeah. in, in you know in a in a state and you know in a state that voted blue, um, yeah. last election. Well, and hanging on through uh, COVID too is you know pretty remarkable achievement. Yep, very much uh, so. And especially a, a test when you're taking a, a political statement like that. Yep. So, yeah. The, so the examples may be uh, visible with smaller companies, but with bigger ones, you take your Disney example, a global brand. You know, nobody in France or England or Germany or Japan is going to even know about the stance that they're taking with Florida, right? They're, they're just going to want sure. to tune in and continue to enjoy the content. And they're going to continue to pump, pump out that content. That's why they have a relationship with Disney. Well, you know, and maybe something to this. It'd be fun to research, see if anybody's done a paper on this. But I, I think Disney has Disney has a certain amount of monopoly power. You know, they're the, they're the preeminent brand in uh, amusement parks, with all due respect to Six Flags. I think the Disney brand has a greater mystique to it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the fact that they own so many entertainment properties from, from you know, Mickey Mouse to Star Wars, right? And I think they don't own Marvel. I think they do. If, um, if they do, good for them because Marvel has been a goldmine. Yeah. Yeah, so yeah, I do think that they own Marvel, and of course they own ESPN, which means they own a lot of the sports franchises. You know, I wonder if part of that conversation, and this can be painful for some people to hear, is Disney says, you know what? They're going to be mad. They're going to go away, but they're going to go away for a while. But eventually, their kids are going to say, "I want to watch Star Wars. (laughs) I want to watch Marvel." Uh And uh, you know, as a parent. As a parent, there's a there's a limit to how long you're willing to sort of allow that to go on for some right. people. Uh, I know I wouldn't be that committed. I'm like, okay, <laughs> here's, yeah. here's Luke Skywalker. Go. Uh-huh. Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, and when you watch that content, it doesn't come with a warning. Right. Oh, by the way, this is this is the stand that they took in uh, you know 2022 in Florida. It's just not going to linger, right? So. Um, Taking the long view is, is really important. I, I think, you know, some people wonder, um, are they sort of uh, 
jumping on a bandwagon too late on some issues. Um, yeah, I mean, you think about Walmart, and you know this may date the uh, the show, but um, the last week or so, Walmart uh, apologized because they were going to be selling merchandise around Juneteenth, and um, so they they took the merchandise away and apologized that they they'd done this. And then there's a variety of comments that are made after the fact, and some of them saying, "Well, they should have kept it in there because." there's probably a lot of people in the United States that don't even know what Juneteenth is and that they're bringing visibility to this and others saying, well, they're kind of exploiting, you know, this opportunity, uh, you know, to respectfully celebrate this, uh, this, this day uh, by commercializing it. So they, they were sort of damned if they did and if they didn't, but nonetheless, you know, here's this global corporation that felt like they made a misstep and had to pull back and apologize. Um, fascinating I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because i do wonder i do wonder if in in some cases at least some cases many companies like it or not are in a are taking a political position right even through inaction you're taking a political position right and, and walmart walmart's walmart probably caused that problem but you're the pr expert i'm not if if they never broached the topic at all, they probably would have been better off than had they done what they did, which was have a false start. Yeah. Because nobody would have had the conversation. Right. Yeah. But now that they did, right? Now that they're in a position, either way, either way they go, they're they're going to be viewed as heroes by somebody and bad, bad people by somebody else. Right. Right. And and this is a company that probably has worked really hard. And this what probably wasn't a board level decision, right? That, the apology was right, but but uh, you know, getting the the items uh, designed and manufactured that you know, was done in sort of product management level. But uh, they probably have a pretty reasonably diverse board now. Yep. And and that discussion to, to pull the products and apologize was went through that forum. I, I I would think, and you can second guess it now, but you know, it, they made the decision. It probably made um, clear sense. And I think to err on the side, and probably this is where they went, risk management, right? So to err on the side of being respectful and not seen as leveraging something that the, there are a lot of sensitivities about is probably the right place to be. Um, you know, the comments about, well, most people don't know what it is. You know, thanks for helping us with publicizing this. You know, that's They could have hoped for that, but probably wouldn't have gotten enough of that to make it worth it. I'm talking with Peter Barron, and the topic is, should I align my company with a political position? And by the way, Walmart, I'm sure if you want Peter's help to uh, resolve those issues in the future, he'd be glad to take your call or email. So uh, <laughs> give him a shout if you're listening out there in, uh, uh, in Bentonville, Arkansas. Um, you mentioned something in passing. I want to make sure that I didn't, I, I didn't skip over because I do think it's important, and that is in your view, is the timing of taking a political position an important factor in the decision, right? Being an early adopter, if you will, versus a latecomer, um, one's a riskier position, the other possibly perceived as being a bandwagon jumper. What, what's your view on that? If a client is asking you, hey, should we take this position early or late? What do you think you'd be more likely to advise? Yeah, I, I like that question. Um, I think it's really, really a tough one. So through the lens of history, 
you know, people are buying um, Mercedes Benz um, despite decisions they made during World War II. Um, same with Mitsubishi and other Japanese brands. You know, we love them there, right? Yep. Um, so, you know, you can make political decisions uh, and throw your support in, in certain directions and, uh, and probably regret it, um, but do okay in the end if you can survive as a business. And I think what we've decided through our conversations, there aren't many uh, political decisions that are made that are existential for corporations. They may affect profit, um, but if you're taking the long view, then uh, it's a different discussion. And that I think that's my advice is take a long view, you know, have a hard look at your customers, that, you know, drive, drive like the Unilever guy over to, the customers and find out, you know, how they're enjoying the Skippy peanut butter and, and what's their life like and uh, realize your position with them. You're a supplier of a vessel that you screw the top off of and they put a knife into and spread it on, on, on bread, right? That's who you are. Don't get ahead of yourself. And, uh, you know, don't feel like you've got this right to change the world. So um, you certainly have clout. And the ability to do some things, but you know, be careful about how you view yourself uh, in the world. That, that, you know, it's a timeline that that uh, that you should really be considering. Getting in too early, getting in too late. I haven't done enough research to know if that really hurts or helps. Publicity-wise, yeah, getting in early is obviously better for, for publicity. Peter, this has been a great conversation. I have a bunch of questions that I could have asked, but but we've had such a thoughtful conversation. We just don't have the time. So I'm sure there are questions that either our listeners wish we would have covered or wish we would have covered more than we did. Uh, if somebody wants to contact you for advice on this question, can they do so? And if so, what's the best way for them to contact you? Yeah, best way is probably um, email, uh, which is pbaron, B-A-R-O-N, at Carabiner Coms, which is C A R A B I N E R C O M M S dot com. That's going to wrap it up for today's program. I'd like to thank Peter Barron so much for sharing his expertise with us. We will be exploring a new topic each week. So please tune in with, so that when you're faced with your next business decision, you have clear vision when, when making it. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider leaving a review with your favorite podcast aggregator. It helps people find us so that we can help them. If you would like to engage with me on social media with my chart of the day and other content, I'm on LinkedIn as myself and at Unblakeable on Facebook, Twitter, Clubhouse, and Instagram. Also, check out my LinkedIn group called Unblakeable's Group That Doesn't Suck. Once again, this is Mike Blake. Our sponsor is Brady Ware & Company, and this has been the Decision Vision Podcast.